Welcome to the latest on the law, a podcast of the Boston Bar Association. The Commonwealth's premier legal association, the BBA, is home to over 15,000 members and 140 institutional partners consisting of law firms, corporations, government agencies, legal aid organizations, and law schools. Visit us at bostonbar.org to learn more. All for logging in uh, for this webinar um, hosted by the BBA. Um, my name is Elizabeth McBoy. I am a member of the Health Law Steering Committee at the BBA and also a partner at Hinkley Allen, where I chair a research integrity and compliance group. Um, so we uh, have a really exciting program today. It, we hope it's going to be an interactive discussion focusing on research misconduct and how it affects um, federally funded research institutions and individuals. Um, but more importantly, about newly proposed rules um, that really propose some new ideas and potentially uh, significant changes to that process. So to handle this exciting topic on a Friday afternoon, um, we brought together three terrific panelists who are going to share really different perspectives. Um, and we're going to try to, you know, share a kind of a 360 view on each of these topics as we go through, to, through today. Um, so I'll have the panelists give a brief background so you understand their own experiences with research misconduct and kind of where they come at these topics from. Um, and I'll, I'll go around the horn to introduce them each. So we'll start with Will McIntyre. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm Will McIntyre, Assistant General Counsel at Beth Israel Leahy Health. I, um, I support BLH hospitals and other business units with their day-to-day -day legal needs, but more relevantly here, I provide legal guidance to research clients and stakeholders across the BLH enterprise. So that includes Leahy Hospital Medical Center, Boston, um, excuse me, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, JAWS, and other institutions across the system. Um, some of our clients collaborate with academic affiliates to um, conduct certain phases of research misconduct proceedings. So I, it's um, always helpful to have all your stakeholders in, involved, and I'm happy to speak to that here today. Excellent. Thank you for joining us. Well. Next, I'm going to introduce you to our panelist, Marilana Healer. Hi, everyone. Happy to be here with you today. Um, my name is Marilana. I'm an attorney at the law firm Epstein, Becker & Green. I am based out of uh, the firm's Boston office. And my practice is focused on advising ANCs, universities, and other research stakeholders on a wide variety of uh, research issues affecting biomedical research. And a significant portion of my practice includes advising institutions on research compliance and research misconduct investigations. Um, our firm also has a consulting arm, EPG Advisors, through which uh, my colleagues and I very frequently also serve as external uh, RIOs, external research integrity officers for these misconduct proceedings um, if and when there's a need for institutions to externalize the process. Thank you for joining. Um, to balance out the panel on the opposite side of these institution and institutional advisors, um, Megan Siddell will introduce herself. Thanks, Liz, and good afternoon, everyone. Um, thank you to the Boston Bar Association for hosting us as well. I'm Megan Siddell. I'm a partner at the law firm of Minor Siddle, which is a white collar criminal defense boutique here in Boston. And a significant part of my practice for the past eight or nine years has included representing respondents in research misconduct investigations at institutions across the country. So with that brief introduction, um, we are going to um, kind of walk through, we're going to start just to kind of level set the playing field here. Um, you know, the four of us probably all know 
research misconduct and what we mean, but some of you may not be as familiar. Um, so Megan, can you just kind of um, start us off? What do we mean when we're referring to research misconduct in this context? Sure. Um, the, the bottom line is we're referring to alterations to the research record. There is a definition in the federal regulations, which is a little cumbersome, but for what it's worth, the research misconduct is intentional, knowing, or reckless fabrication, falsification, or plagiarism in proposing, performing, or reviewing research or in reporting research results. Um, examples would include things like manipulating images in a published paper um, or making up data or plagiarizing someone else's work. And importantly, research misconduct does not include a number of other issues that sometimes pop up in the course of research. So for example, it doesn't include issues with the IRB, financial conflicts of interest or employment matters in the lab. There may be other processes for addressing those other issues, but they're not covered by the PHS rule that we're talking about today. So we're really narrowly looking on this kind of small set um, of research-based fraud or kind of wrongdoing. Um, and there are some important players um, who really govern this process, who set the standards, and in their title of our program today reflects them, uh, two of them. Um, so Marilana, do you want to kind of orient everybody? Who are the federal arms, federal agencies involved in this process, and what's their role? Sure. So, um, you know, we talk about research misconduct. We talk about ORI, which stands for the Office of Research Integrity. Um, it is an office that's located within the Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. And ORI's mission, um, you know, in a nutshell, is to promote the integrity of U.S. public health service supported research. Um, and I know, you know, many of us may be familiar with HHS and less familiar with the acronym PHS. Um, when we say PHS, we are referring to a collection of nine agencies within HHS, and um, those collection of nine agencies include some of the biggest federal funders of research, so uh, for example, NIH and the CDC. And so ORI really, um, its aim is to conserve public funds by ensuring the integrity of all PHS-supported work, and some of the things that they do uh, in order to achieve those aims includes, you know, oversight of research misconduct inquiries and investigations. They do a lot of education and training um, in the responsible conduct of research. They also make findings themselves of research misconduct, um, and they also propose administrative actions. Um, they also review in institutional policies and procedures to make sure they comply with the research misconduct regulations. Um, and I, I will say that the same statute that authorizes ORI to perform its responsibilities also directs entities that perform PHS sponsored biomedical or behavioral, behavioral research to, to share this responsibility to preserve the integrity of the research um, and to protect PHS funds. So, so the regulations that we are going to be discussing today are the regs that are, um, you know, implement the requirements of the statute for both ORI and PHS funded institutions. And, and these regs, you know, sort of outline the, the shared responsibility between ORI and the institutions that receive PHS funding. Thank you. That was a super helpful overview. So, I mean, I think a huge takeaway from what you just said is that this is, you know, some of the most lucrative funding agencies where, you know, billions of research dollars are going. It's actually flowing through this PHS um, organization, umbrella organization. And so these regs are actually incredibly important to anyone in the field who has any touch points with these agencies and funding from them for their research. Um, Marilana did a great job of kind of showing, under, 
explaining to us that the PHS rules really provide some guidance to the institutions, what the shared responsibilities are. Megan, in your role, um, kind of uh, in the defense side, do you similarly uh, look at these regulations and what role do they have in your practice? Absolutely. So the PHS regulations in, in cases that are governed by them um, set a minimum threshold that institutions have to follow when they're conducting a research misconduct investigation. So um, the institution will also have its own separate policy, which can include matters that are not necessarily governed by, this, by the PHS policy, but they can't conflict with the PHS regulations. So I'm, when I'm looking at the PHS regulations, I'm also looking at them in conjunction with the institutional policy to see are there any conflicts in there? Is there any um, place that the institution is not following the PHS regulations when it conducts the investigation? Um, and I'm also wondering um, to the extent those conflict, is that is there some pressure that I can bring onto the institution in the form of potentially a lawsuit um, if, if the institution is not following those regulations? So moving down kind of from the highest level, 10,000 foot overview of who's involved and kind of what our statutory frameworks are, um, it flows down, as we've just discussed, to the institutions. And really, I think a lot of what we'll talk about with these three panelists today are kind of how does this all play out in a practical sense? What is happening, um, you know, when concerns arise? And um, to, to help kind of guide us through how these how institutions are impacted on it in a really practical level. I'm going to turn over to Will to uh, describe that um, kind of the overview. Thanks, Liz. The, um, so 42 CFR Part uh, 93, which is where these regs reside, provide a um, fairly good framework for how an institution would proceed through responding to an allegation with varying levels of formality, that some of which is, is up for some change now with the proposed uh, modifications to the regulation. But essentially there are, we'll say three parts to the institution's response to an allegation. Um, and the first, well, we'll so, We'll describe them as the assessment, the inquiry, and the investigation phases. Um, and the assessment is is really actually quite informal in the regulation. Um, part 93 requires that an institution make an assessment um, for um, the potentiality for research misconduct having occurred in response to an allegation, but doesn't really offer much by way of guidance, except that um, the, there is a standard for what, um, how you might define the end of the assessment, and that is whether um, an inquiry is warranted based on the, the findings by the institution at the assessment phase. Um, and for the regs, an, an inquiry is warranted if the allegation um, falls within the definition of research misconduct, which, which Megan um, read for us, um, it regards PHS-funded research or training, and then is sufficiently credible and specific so that potential evidence of research misconduct may be identified. Um, so I think you can see that it's a fairly, fairly um, informal, but also fairly low standard to be met if we're looking merely for potential evidence of research misconduct in order to move it on to the inquiry phase. Um, at the inquiry phase, which the regs require um, completion in 60 days, and we can talk about that. The inquiry's purpose is to decide if an allegation warrants 
moving on to the investigation phase. So the inquiry phase is a little more formal than the assessment phase, but really is also a veteran process for the investigation phase. Um, and again, there, there is a standard for moving on to the investigation phase, just as there was for um, an assessment. I won't, I won't read it here entirely, but um, we're basically establishing whether um, an allegation may have substance in the preliminary information gathering that has that has done um, that has been done by the institution. There is, unlike the assessment phase, there is a formal reporting requirement here, or rather, I should say, um, the institution is required to um, generate a report and must also actually provide the respondent with um, an opportunity to review and on and comment on the inquiry report. If the institution has decided to move from the inquiry to investigation phase, ORI actually needs to be um, reported to if, if, if the institution is going to make that step. Um, so, so again, that is, that is uh, the second phase is required to, to take place within 60 days. And then the investigation phase is required to occur within 120 days. Um, all of these deadlines you may find are actually fairly difficult for institutions to do. Um, you know, if you're scheduling with your, your committees or, or your research integrity officers who, who may have other jobs, you know, they may be physicians, they may be administrators. Um, so sometimes that's difficult to get through in the required periods. Um, but the, the sort of the mandate of the investigation is to diligently pursue all relevant leads um, that have come up during the assessment in inquiry phases and um, also interview anyone who may have information to um, to contribute to that evaluation of whether research misconduct has occurred. So that includes that includes witnesses, that includes other people who can speak to the elements of research misconduct um, for for deciding whether it has occurred. Um, those interviews must be transcribed. And um, a rule of thumb that I think doesn't need to be in the regs, but I think it's good that it is in the regs from the institutional perspective, is that um, the institution needs to conduct these proceedings in a, in a very fair manner. Um, and I think that that seems obvious, but it's actually you know sometimes difficult to to actually to actually do. So um, that bears some putting effort into. And then finally, the institution must generate a report. From this, and, and again, the respondent um, is required as, as a, a matter of fairness and, and the, the due process provided to get a chance to review um, a draft of that report and any evidence that was was consulted in in contributing to that report. That's a great overview. Thank you. Well, I mean, I think one thing just to highlight, um, you know, for anyone that practices in any other area of government oversight. The process is incredibly regimented when we get down to the institutional level. So, you know, these academic medical centers, these hospitals um, and others, you don't have a lot of discretion on kind of what to do when someone starts sounding um, the alarm of potential misconduct. So, it, you know, it gives you guidance and at the same time holds you accountable, as we just heard, to kind of making sure you're, you're giving the due process. Um, and it, you know, again, it's being carried out by the institution. So there is that also, uh, I think, distinction between a lot of other government enforcement activities. Now, when we get to the institutional process, as we'll just describe, there's a report. Um, and then, you know, what what happens from there? And Marilana, do you want to kind of talk about what that next step is? You know, obviously, a finding misconduct is, is serious. 
Yeah, it, it is. Um, and, you know, I will just add to what Will was saying is that, you know, ORI is always, as you mentioned, Liz, that like, you know, the, the process is very prescriptive and um, ORI is always available for institutions to assist, um, you know, with this inquiry and investigations. I know that oftentimes institutions do uh, reach out to ORI during the process um, to get sort of their blessing or, um, you know, to get their thoughts on whether they want to proceed in a certain way or not. Um, you know, that could be done also um, you know, anonymously, but um, I think, you know, that sort of relationship between ORI and the institution with the idea that they're both working towards the same goal um, is helpful in this highly prescriptive process. Um, so yeah, so once ORI um, you know receives the report from the institution, um, it um, it reviews it itself and it reviews the findings and the and the process that the institution took and then makes its own independent findings. And if ORI determines that misconduct has occurred, then HSS, you know, depending on how bad the misconduct was, can and, and oftentimes does impose administrative actions um, that in order to protect the public against, you know, any kind of further misuse of public funds by that certain researcher. And, you know, if it, it could also, you know, not issue findings against the respondent, which doesn't really negate the institution's findings um, because ORI's ORI's findings are independent of the institution's findings. And I think that's another incredible uh, difference between other areas um, where the government is really kind of in charge of the investigation. Here, what PHS rules have you know, basically mapped out, as you guys have just talked about, is that there's actually a very strong mandate, but that the institution's process is its own. Um, and then you know, ORI will pick up and conduct its own process. So you're really kind of subject to two times through if you're an individual um, in the hot seat. And we'll get to, you know, towards the end of our program, um, some proposed changes that actually might blur those lines a lot more. So, you know, with this overview, hopefully everyone gets a good appreciation for this process. Um, you know, there's a lot of rules, there's a lot of regulations. And after almost two decades of having this particular statute and set of regulations in, um, in effect, ORI is proposing to do some, some things a little differently. Um, so we'll walk through kind of some of the more notable changes um, here that I think uh, anyone involved in this field should be aware of and should definitely uh, be mindful of. But I'll just highlight that these are proposed. So if anyone on this call is involved with stakeholders, um, individuals, institutions, whomever, um, there's still time to, to reach out and ORI has invited comments. So that comment period, I think, goes till December 5th. Um, so, you know, as you hear them, if they're outrageous, then I think, um, you know, you do speak up and exercise your civil duties. Um, so starting at kind of the, the process level, the definitions and things that are really kind of foundational to the process, there have been some proposed changes um, to just, you know, kind of the sheer uh, structure. The, the first one um, has to do with the time period. So the statute of limitations, currently there's a six year time limitation and a look back period, um, but there's a very well recognized exception that's often used. So, well, what is, you know, what can people look forward to um, and by way of potential changes to the six year look back period? Yeah, thanks Liz. The, um, so yeah, this exception is, is fairly frequently cited and it's referred to as the subsequent use exception um, and that basically means that if a um, uh, the part of the research record um, that is alleged to have been fabricated falsified or plagiarized is subsequently um, cited republished or, or some other use of made uh, some other use of it is made um, 
for the potential benefit of the respondent, then that can um, sort of re-trigger the applicability of Part 93 um, and the institution's obligations to go through that process that we discussed about, you know, assessing whether research misconduct um, is is pointed to by the the facts. And there there is a a pretty significant change, at least in my mind, um, proposed here in the regs. And that is to um, specify that not only that not the entire manuscript or article will say is being republished or cited, but um, a specific portion of that research record is being repurposed for for the um, respondent's benefit. Which I think um, you know a lot a lot hangs on the 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 presence of a single word, but I think it actually may make the assessor's job um, in responding to an allegation meaningfully more difficult, particularly if they don't have a science background, because you know the, the status quo is that you can see if an article is being cited that you know falls within the six years. Um, but now you have to take the next the, the next step in the analysis and see, well, not only are we talking about the article, but the, the concepts or is a figure being cited. Um, and personally, as a non-scientist myself, I, I would have a lot of difficulty doing that. Um, and maybe for some institutions, it's not so difficult to to bring in, um, you know, an expert within the community to help to help you with that. But some institutions may not have that may not have that luxury. Um, so I think that's that's a meaningful change. And then there's also a, another interesting change in the subsequent use exception area, and that is that. ORI now needs to be informed if the institution um, uh, decides that the exception does not apply to, to an allegation. So it's, it's now um, an affirmative expectation that the institution is, is conducting that analysis and, and notifying ORI um, before, before making that determination that it does not apply. And Marilana, I know you advise a lot of you know, institutions on how to carry out this process. Does that make, you know, is that a positive change in terms of institutions or does that just add kind of a new reporting requirement that, um, you know, they have to meet? Yeah, I think, you know, I think it's it's definitely more burdensome on institutions, I think, you know, especially nowadays where a lot of um, allegations come in through, you know, public forums like Papier and, uh, you know, that sorts. I think it's, I think the, uh, you know, this, this requirement was, Burdens them originally in the old regs, and I think this just added an added burden and, and time and effort on the institutions. Yeah. Um, so we know that the time frame, you know, has kind of shifted slightly, and there's going to have to be some work up front. And then when it gets down to kind of applying those definitions, as, as Will described, us uh, walked us through that process. There have actually been some some changes and some clarifications, if you will, um, to how the core terms um, have been defined. Megan, can you walk us through kind of what has changed on that front and what those, you know, people need to really be looking at when we're referring back to research misconduct if these are accepted? Sure. There, there are a few key terms that weren't defined in the regulations before and now are being defined or being defined a little bit differently um, in ways that I expect will impact our investigations going forward. And one of those terms is honest error. Uh, the old regulation specifies that an honest error is not research misconduct, but there's no definition of what an honest error is. 
So that's something I've spent a great deal of time in my practice trying to argue that my clients' mistakes were just honest errors, as opposed to reckless, intentional, or knowing research misconduct, which, which is considered research misconduct. Um, so the, the, the new definition in the regulations is that an honest error is a mistake made in good faith. I think we'll probably still have a fair amount of disputes over what a mistake made in good faith means and what good faith is. But think, sitting here before having litigated it, um, a few ideas come to mind. Um, I could imagine situations where the scientists maybe didn't know about an error and had no reason to know about an error. And I would argue that that is potentially um, a good faith mistake. Um, I can also think of situations where perhaps the science um, or the mistake was outside of the, the standard accepted practices of the relevant scientific community, but the scientist who was actually collecting the data or, or performing the experiment didn't have a reason to know about that. So for example, if they're using a technique that's outside of their core area of expertise um, and maybe they get it wrong, um, but they're really trying their best to get it right, I would argue that that's a good faith, honest error. Um, the, another example that comes up a lot are just generic cut and paste errors and a one-off cut and paste error, I think we could um, argue is an honest mistake. But on the flip side of that is the question of when do honest errors and a pattern of honest errors become recklessness? And recklessness is considered research misconduct. And that's another term that we've ended up spending a lot of time um, debating what that means. And now um, the regulations are going to include a definition of recklessness. There's been a few definitions that have bubbled up in different ALJ opinions but they've opted for one in, a, in the decision um, against a scientist, Dr. Kripke. Um, that definition is to act without proper caution despite a known risk of harm. I think that's an interesting choice. It's slightly narrower than some of the earlier decisions um, that have been out there, which tended to say simply that a senior author on a paper is reckless whenever there's an error in their paper, which I think is too broad. Um, However, there is some language in the Kripke decision that, that is sympathetic to that view, but the facts of Kripke, I think, are very important. That was a lab where there were known problems with some of the scientists who had since left. Um, there were um, some sloppy systems in the lab as well, and, and the ALJ ultimately concluded that those were likely to lead to errors and held a senior corresponding author responsible for those errors. Um, so how that recklessness definition ultimately gets interpreted um, remains to be seen, but is something I'll be keeping a, a close eye on. Um, another definition that is um, has changed a bit in the new regulations in an important way is the definition of plagiarism. Um, plagiarism now explicitly does not include self-plagiarism and it does not include authorship disputes. Um, I think that's probably a helpful narrowing. I, I don't know that these are very costly and time-intensive investigations, both for the institutions and for the respondents. I don't know that institutions really want or need to be spending the money looking at whether someone properly cited their own work when someone else's work isn't being stolen um, or necessarily getting into the weeds and authorship disputes, which in academia can be, can be bitter and, and complex and perhaps um, not necessarily um, harmful to public funds. Thanks, Megan. And just to kind of... Um drill down on the self-plagiarism, there was a wave, I think, probably more five or so years ago, where there were investigators and published researchers 
who actually, you know, copy and pasted their own work because they had wrote it, they had thought of it, and used their own mental processes. And then we're getting um, put through the same process for actually having not been very clear that that section or that paragraph was from another paper. Um, so to Megan's point, it is a, it's a good narrowing, um, particularly I think from all the all sides where we're not um, focusing on that, but it's also, it was a very different type of plagiarism case, I think just in general, um, when we think about the rules of fraud. Um, I want to move over to Marilana in a second to talk about the conflict of interest. But before we do, Megan highlighted a really, I think, big shift or, or you know, a, a big change in terms of getting into what recklessness means. Um, I think anyone in this space knows recklessness has taken on a pretty um, big profile in these cases because it allows institutions to get at maybe an individual who wasn't involved in an experiment, maybe a principal investigator overseeing an experiment paper or a lab and really kind of use some supervisory liability. Um, and so interestingly enough, I think the sense of sloppiness, you know, where does that fall now given these Zoom definitions? Um, we didn't talk about it beforehand, but Marilana, what, what, what do you think? Do you think sloppiness would be recklessness now under this new definition? Um, do you think there's kind of any guidance around that or it kind of still remains to be seen? I think it remains to be seen. Um, you know, I, I do agree with what Megan said, which is, you know, the definition that um, ORI is proposing is more narrow than than what we've seen in um, some other ALJ cases. I think, um, you know, I think that the the addition of the term known risk in the proposed definition is can be a little confusing and can conflate it with with knowingly. Um, so I think, you know, I think. Rains to be seen if that will stay in the in the proposed regs, but yeah, I think um, I think additional clarity if if this definition doesn't change would definitely be helpful. Yeah, a lot to talk about uh, certainly in these internal discussions. Um, another change, kind of moving through the process from the definitions, is when you do get into an inquiry, um, there has been I think some confusion among practitioners in this area. Um, whether or not the respondent who is being accused has the right to object that members of the panel, you know, making these decisions may have a conflict of interest. Um, and now there's some, some clarification around that, um, that, you know, may help or um, may relieve some burden on institutions. Marilana, do you want to talk a little bit about that change? Sure. Um, so, you know, as we've been saying, you know, according to the regulation, institutions um, have an obligation to respond to each and every allegation of research misconduct um, for which they are responsible for. Um, and they have to respond in a thorough way. It has to be competent, um, objective, and in, in a fair manner. And that um, includes putting in precautions to make sure that the individuals who are responsible for carrying out these proceedings don't have any unresolved personal, professional, or financial conflict of interest with either the complainant, um, the respondent, or any witnesses. Um, and that has not changed. So that was in the old regs, and this, that is still in the proposed regulations. Um, and historically, you know, many institutions, um, you know, when they were performing their uh, committee selection to make sure to you know, select uh, individuals uh, to the committee to review the allegation, um, you know, they they would provide the respondents and the complainants the names of the potential members, and they would give them an opportunity to object to um, these individuals. And and so what that is kind of just like became the best practice among many institutions. I think you know what has changed now in the proposed regs is ORI is saying, you know, institutions you don't have to do that. You don't have to provide the respondents and the claimants with 
um, you know, this opportunity to object. But if you do give them the opportunity, you have to make sure that you provide it. If you if you provide it to one respondent, you have to provide it to all of them. And if you provide it to one uh, claimant, you have to provide it to all of them. So you know that in and of itself isn't isn't a bad thing. It's not a it's a it's not a bad change. But I think what it does sort of at, at a macro level is that you know or I, or I had taken this like best practice that has been developed by institutions over the years and is really in the best interest of respondents and and institutions and it's saying now this isn't a requirement and i think you know that creates a little bit of a disincentive for institutions to keep adhering to this best practice because now they are going to be held to a, a regulatory standard and you know that always puts them at a greater risk of a process claim by a respondent so yeah, I, I think it's pretty significant. Um, and certainly, I don't think anyone benefits from keeping those objections till the end. So there was a 10 day comment period. Um, I think it took the word right out of Megan's mouth. It's no, you know, it's to no one's benefit to hear it for the first time. Um, so uh, I definitely know there's a notable change on that front. Yeah, and it's also hard to sort of, you know, and so in practice, you know, if you don't want to give them that option, you know, how do you ensure that? There aren't any unresolved personal, professional, financial conflict. It's, it's, it's you know, it's definitely. Yeah, yeah. There, I've been on many cases where there's an actual conflict, especially a personal conflict that isn't obvious to the institution at all. And I can't imagine that those institutions would have wanted me to stay silent on those objections until the very end of the process. Yeah. Well, do you want to chime in on how that would make your life harder? There are um, moments when outside counsel can 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 be an ally, and I but, the, but I mean respondents counsel, and so um, yes, institutions are always trying to do. I'm sure trying to do the best they can to to ensure a fair process, but sometimes all the necessary facts to to ensure that are not available to them. So I think that's that's a an instance where um, these proceedings seeming to be less adversarial than some others can sort of can reveal themselves um you know or we can help we can be helped institution could be helped to um to uh reach sort of a fairer a fairer process yeah you're kind of hinting at it throughout but there it's an interesting process where it's not always diametric opposition and there can be some alignment throughout which hopefully we'll kind of circle back to at the end um, having set up the definitional structure here and where we're headed, um, I want to actually take a step back before we notify the inquiry and talk about the first of the three phases we'll mention um, and what is meant by the preliminary and institutional assessment under these new proposed regs. Right. So um, we talked about it when we were discussing the, the three phases that the, the inquiry and investigation phases have have time limits. Assessment phase previously did not, although um, ORI has decided that now the assessment should be conducted promptly, which um, it doesn't actually, I think, define directly, but later on suggest that that should be 30 days, um, which you might say to yourself is kind of short, but um, I would say hopefully the, the, the new regs also point out that there's no requirement to conduct any interviews during the assessment phase. Um, which the, the the reg is currently silent on. So I think a lot of institutions do take that step. Um, so the new the new 
provision there doesn't necessarily, I would say, refute the prior the prior existing language, but I think it does, to me, suggest that ORI is trying to point, to poke institutions and say maybe your the workup you're doing at the assessment phase is is more than you need, right? That this the standard that you're trying to clear in order to get onto inquiry um, is a little lower, so you don't need to do a full panoply of of interviews. Um, however, if you do choose to can, to conduct interviews at that phase, um, you know, there are some parameters that that I will just allow people to look up. Um, we don't have to go over them here, but they also need to be provided, you know, there, it's a matter matters of, of fairness and due process, and they need to be provided to anyone who gets interviewed really at any any point of, of the proceeding. Um, so I think another indication from ORI that they that um, institutions maybe were lacking in the fairness that, that they were um, extending to not only respondents, but to to other people participating, witnesses, um, complainants along in the process. Um, and then I would add one other interesting um, wrinkle they've added um, or clarification, I would say, is that um, clarifying that an allegation needs to be something that is brought directly to the attention of an institutional official, which I think was is a little more direct and a little more clear um, about. I know some institutions wonder if, say, um, uh, something published on PubPeer or another similar website, you know, rises to the level of an allegation. And here's OR saying definitively, no, it has to be something that is really directed to um, an institutional official. A great point. Um, Megan, I want to kind of tap you to talk about that because I think when you're representing an individual who might be, you know, subject to lots of different exposure, it might be misconduct, but there might be other areas that you as the lawyer are thinking about. Um, the change we'll just mention about having to bring it directly does seem to help, at least on its face, keep things going kind of filtered through the regular process as opposed to these kind of wild accusations that might be going on um, through the internet and kind of, you know, the scientific blogs and what have you. Do you see that as a meaningful change? Um, I, I hope it will be a meaningful change. We certainly see cases um, that tend to spiral out of control a bit when there's a, a storm of allegations that pop up on PubPeer. It's, it's almost when, when news of an investigation leaks, which it sometimes does, then um, sometimes we see more um, pushback and public examination of, of the, the author's um, previous work. Um, but uh, I also think I've seen ORI push back on institutions and require institutions to do a six-year look back more and more. So I don't know how, how big a change this will end up being if the institution has to look at everything anyway. Yeah, relatedly, Marilana, when you have you know an institution call you up and say, there's this scathing pub here, comment, you know, totally unverified for those who don't read up here. Um, it's kind of a forum where you can air your grievances. Um, what do you tell the Rios and, and the other officials who are concerned? Yeah, I think, you know, I think these proposed regs are helpful, but I think, you know, what's, what is missing and what would be a good addition is to just also add that the disclosure has to be purposeful and it has to be specifically to allege wrongdoing, you know, just a mention on Pierre saying, 
hey, this figure looks, you know, suspicious, isn't isn't really alleging wrongdoing and is not alleging, um, you know, research potential research misconduct. So you really need that like extra step. I think you know the 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 terminology that they've added brought directly to the attention of is helpful, but I think not just to bring to the attention of the institution, but also with the specific intent to allege, I think, wrongdoing would be um, be really helpful and beneficial to institutions because as we've been saying, you know, this can, you know, there's so the papyrus, there's just so many um, you know, comments back and forth and um and hard to hard to police that and hard to respond to that. Definitely. And I think um, you know, some cases get all the way to the end in my experience, and you really don't even know what the wrongdoing was. It was just that it was so, you know, the evidence is mounting of duplication and there feels like a momentum building. Um, and I think it would be really helpful to narrow it from the very beginning of the process. Um, so that doesn't happen. Um, speaking of the process, you know, once we've filtered out through the assessment that there's going to be an inquiry, there have been also some new changes. Um, proposed or, or clarifications, perhaps, depending how you read them, to the institutional inquiry process. Marilena, what has changed? What may change with the inquiry? Yeah, so I think in the in the old regulations, they had language regarding the preponderance of evidence, um, and you know that I don't think that has really changed much. They or I suggested taking it out from its own section, and now it's been incorporated in the requirements for a finding of research misconduct under. Um, the new proposed section 93104. Um, one, so that really hasn't changed. The burden of proof is still the same. It's just, I think it's, you know, incorporated in the definition as opposed to a standalone section. And um, what about this? And again, it may be more of a clarification, but I think there is some kind of airtime given to the fact that at the inquiry phase, there needs to be a clear delineation that PHS funds are involved. Um, and one thing we haven't really harped on for this webinar, but there's of course instances where research is privately funded, it's internally funded, um, and those are gonna you know, shift some of the stakes that we've talked about. Um, you know, of course, the institutional policies will always need to be followed, um, but there is always kind of that threshold question of whether we're dealing with PHS oversight and ORI, or whether we're kind of working under our own um, so now that, you know, the fact that the funding is part of the inquiry determination, I don't know if anyone, I'll open up to all the panelists, have thoughts on whether that will um, shift these institutional inquiries in any direction or whether that was kind of already being done in the back end, just maybe not explicitly. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. I think, you know, I think generally institutions do apply the PHS regulations to non-PHS non funded research. I think, you know, they apply the same process, but but for some institutions, they may have in their policy, you know, certain um, make a make a distinction on certain, you know, some of the more onerous requirements. So they they build in flexibility, like for example, like for timeframes, um, they may not they may not have the same timeframes and same same requirements for the non PHS funded research. Um, so I do think historically they've been you know leaning on the uh, more flexible side for non-PHS research, but again, the process is the same. I do think it's important for institutions, you know, to think about the precedent that they set and, and how they treat respondents. You don't, you don't want to be treating respondents differently just because their research is funded by PHS or, or non-PHS, and so you don't want to set it up in a different way where kind of this desperate treatment can lead to potential, um, you know, trouble moving forward or lawsuits. Yeah, and I think um, another, you may have mentioned this on our prep call, which is why it's top of mind, but there might be other obligations, right? You may have contractual duties with funding agencies, and um, you shouldn't 
be you know neglectful of those either. Anyone else want to comment on that? I think that's right. I think I think the one benefit of how prescriptive this reg is on um, on the research misconduct investigation process assessment process um, is that it allows for very clear policies. And so I would you know I think it's 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 prudent for or institutions to um, really take the time to develop a clear good policy that they can they can point to right as as evidence of treating respondents fairly you know as has been discussed um, and I think it's it's difficult to build in deviations depending on the source of the funding so like like Marilana said I, I think the the time frames is is an easy one you know you can say all right you know, inquiry has to last this long in this case, or or doesn't have a time limit in this case. But other than that, it's it's hard for the institution, I think, to consistently follow these processes well if it, it's got um, treating different cases differently. And also, I think the line between um, PHS funded research and non PHS funded research can be quite fuzzy. You know, maybe you've got um, an internally funded pilot project that is going potentially going to be included in a grant submission to NIH. Um, you've got a pretty clear um, PHS nexus there, but maybe it's not obvious, you know, in some other instances that are that are similar. Yeah, those are some excellent points. Megan, has your experience been different with PHS funded and non-PHS funded um, allegations or research? Yeah, it's been a little different. I think generally institutions do follow the same uh, set of procedures in non-PHS funded research, although I've seen a few that streamline the process a bit. I've seen at least one that only has a single phase investigation rather than the dual phase. Um, but I, I think atmospherically, there's a bit of a difference between non-PHS funded and PHS funded cases. And I, I just always have a sense that my clients have a little bit of an easier time when there isn't federal funding involved. And uh, I, I don't know if it's because sometimes those are cases with more junior scientists and people are a little more forgiving, um, you know, scientists who don't necessarily have their own R01 awards, for example. Um, and it might also be because institutions don't feel like they have the same skin in the game. They're, they're not facing the risk of having to repay a federal grant. And so I, it always feels a little bit easier to me when there are no federal funds involved. Interesting. Um, well, I wanna move on to an area where I think we see some significant change um, and that's around, you know, kind of the confidentiality. So to bring us back to, you know, the research misconduct, the duality that we've discussed here today, you know, we were talking mostly about the institutional process, what's going on um, by the, you know, the employer, the hospital, the center what have you, when there's an allegation made about one of their um, researchers at their institution. And so that kind of oversight, you know, as we've talked about, gives way to the ORI process where ORI actually picks up those results and does its own uh, due diligence and, and brings its own charge finding and potentially sanctions and, and other measures. Um, but what's interesting, and I think one hallmark of this process is um, at the institutional level, there are some confidentiality provisions that on first blush show that, you know, you're not going to be outed to your colleagues. We're not going to 
broadcast, even to ORI initially, kind of all the details. Um, and that typically, in my experience, does give some comfort um, to individuals who don't want to be named as respondents. Um, but well, maybe you could talk a little bit about what this confidentiality means, because I think it is fairly unique. Because it's not as strict as you know one might hope when you're facing those accusations. No, I think that's right, particularly from the view of the respondent. Right, I think um, the notion of confidentiality to a lot of people means um, very narrowed. Um, disclosures of, of information. And I think um, that's not always the case in, in this kind of um, this kind of process. And, and on the one hand, I think it, um, you know, the existing regs reflect ORI's appreciation of how damaging an allegation of research misconduct can be to, to the scientist's career. Um, but at the same time, the um, the breadth of sources of information that you know may be required to do an adequate assessment, inquiry, and investigation of, of whether misconduct has occurred. Um, so you know the, the existing standard is a need-to-know standard, which I think wasn't um, super clearly developed. Right, I think we could all spend all day discussing what need means. But um, it does reflect ORI's appreciation that, you know, a, a committee or institution is going to need to involve a fair number of people to get to the bottom of whether research misconduct has occurred. Um, so the circle of people who need to know is a bit broader than I think respondent would probably like. Um, and then also the new regs um, expressly include, you know, other sources of information, not just within the institution, but maybe at other institutions, you know, maybe there's um, a collaborator in the research in question at a different institution, or maybe there's a, um, a subaward involved. And so there's going to be evidence at a, another institution of, of the potential um, research misconduct. And then also the uh, involvement of journals is now squarely mentioned, um, or notification to in the new regs. So um, the the circle has sort of widened a bit in, in this NPRM. I don't know the, that in practice it's going to change much, but you, you're hearing it now directly from ORI that those those parties are fair game um, for being involved in, in an investigation and also for mitigating potential harm to the scientific record, which is sort of the underlying, um, underlying impetus for all of this. You know, ORI is um, uh, appreciative that correcting the scientific record may be may mean notifying a journal that that a manuscript submitted to them um, is suspect. You know, even if the journal is not going to be involved in it in the fact finding um, uh, stage of or, or process. Mary Lana, it's it's interesting what we'll just describe because it is a very nuanced kind of give and take of who needs to know to properly execute your research oversight and then who really, you know, shouldn't know because we're trying to abide by confidentiality. What guidance do you give clients on kind of where to draw that line? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a good question and it's really hard to know where to draw the line. I think it's very fact dependent. Um, you know, I think, um, I think as much as possible institutions try not, you know, not to disclose. Um, and I think, you know, when, when we do decide that, yes, there is a need to disclose, I think it's very important to document why and the reasons in our thought process and behind, you know, behind saying, okay, we're gonna move forward and disclose at this point. Yeah. 
Well, um, that is definitely one area where we see kind of a, a widening or broadening of the um, confidentiality or the non-confidential circle. Um, but there's another area of the regs that I think, you know, warrants some discussion and attention here as we wrap up. Um, and that is that, as we talked about, you know, the institutional process has enjoyed a lot of independence, um, and that includes towards the end. Those findings, um, just to kind of summarize, have a really manifest in institutional actions, so can be uh, weak as a reprimand or and as severe as tenure revocation. Um, and I think for individuals, that's very difficult, but it also is different than kind of um, facing a broader sanction and, and your federal funding and what have you. And that kind of falls into that ORI process. Um, but now it's not quite so clear that the institutional process would end in that way. Um, and so um, let me kick it over to Megan to kind of talk about, there's this new proposal, Megan, that now the outcomes of institutional um, investigations are actually gonna become public through ORI to kind of increase transparency, at least that's the um, rationale provided to the public and to the community that this has been addressed or um, that the institution has kind of looked into it. Um, what does that mean and kind of what does that look like for a respondent going through the institutional process? Yeah, I, I think this change is very concerning, Liz. Um, just the mere fact of an allegation of research misconduct is devastating to a science uh, scientist's career. Um, I've seen people held up for years in investigations that haven't been proven, um, and some ultimately who are exonerated at the end, but in the meantime, everyone's left their lab. All their collaborators are suspicious of them. No one else wants to hire them. They're truly devastating for the scientist. And it's always been a possibility in a severe case that ORI would issue a finding that would be made public on the federal registry. Um, but with this change, it's possible that an institution finding of responsibility would be made public. And I'm very worried that that's too harsh. The definition of research misconduct covers a huge range of conduct, all the way from you know, a few errors that maybe border between honest error and recklessness, um, and that are, are errors and, and problems that can be fixed going forward, all the way up to I've seen cases where people have intentionally made up data. Those are not the same case. They don't present the same risk to federal funds or to the research record and they shouldn't be treated the same. But under this policy, all of those people could have their names published as being found responsible um, with the ORI. Um, and I'm, I'm concerned that the institutional process um, covers, it, there's some due process concerns that I have. So the institutional process, as I said earlier, that the regulations are just a threshold. Institutions can make findings of research misconduct for conduct that isn't covered by the federal regulation. It can be more expansive. The, the, the proposed regulations don't address whether in those cases ORI might publish a responsibility finding. Um, and I'm also concerned that sometimes there are rogue panels that come to bad decisions and we ultimately fight successfully higher up within the institution or ultimately at ORI to get those findings reversed. But are those people now gonna have their responsibility findings published um, for the whole country to see? And I'm, I'm very concerned about this, this change and the impact that it's going to have. There's been this sort of ratcheting up of the consequences and the length of investigations um, and the severity of penalties. Um, and I, I think this is a, a, an escalation in that trend. Yeah, and just to kind of level set it, I mean, there's in other areas of enforcement, which we use as a parallel, um, 
you don't see simple mistakes getting this level of attention. You know, there's usually successful negotiations and deferrals of those types of um, charges. And so it is a really concerning um, proposal because there's no discretion as far as I read it into kind of not making that, you know, just for a single error. Um, Marilana, Will, what are your thoughts on, on how this may impact, you know, where what your clients are doing? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's definitely an, an interesting addition in the proposed regs. I think um, I think the thought process from be, behind it is to make you know these committees uh, analysis public so that I think you know other institutions can benefit from um, perhaps the analysis. And I think there are some protections. There's reference to the Privacy Act. There's reference to you know not making the names or um, any identification or any not sharing any identifiable information of the respondents, there is some protection, but I think, you know, it just as Megan was saying, it makes the respondents nervous. I, I think it definitely makes institutions um, worried and, and nervous as well of how much is going to be published. Um, I think, you know, these the reports that the committees generate are, are truly an art form. And, um, you know, I think not to plug in research council, but I think should really be reviewed by legal counsel, uh, especially be, you know, especially because of how prescriptive these regs are. Um, and so I think now with this sort of like potential uh, looming aspect of you know being them being made publicly available, I think that's even more important to have them reviewed by counsel um, and and to make sure that they're meeting the specific regulatory requirements. And I'll just add in that even though um, ORI is not proposing publishing names with this. Um, I have little faith that the names won't become public. Uh, and that's because there are blogs um, and commentators who closely follow retractions. There's often rumors in the media about my clients before there's any public finding. And so I, I, I think in a lot of those cases, um, it, various members of the media will figure out who the respondents are. Yeah, retraction watch is one of the most brutal in the fact that they'll read the major journal retractions and then they'll go back and do their homework. Yes. Will, any thoughts from you about, um, you know, adding on a whole nother requirement and airing out the institutional process for all to see? Yes, I think it, um, uh, you have all d discussed this um, very uh, um, thoroughly and, and thoughtfully. I, I think you know, I think about sort of the potential for some strange outcomes where the institution was trying to show fidelity to the process that is prescribed in the regulation. You know, maybe they don't even have a more expansive, um, you know, mandate in their policy and do make findings of research misconduct only for ORI to to fall in, in the opposite direction. How likely is that? I, I don't know. But, you know, and ORI certainly is, is involved as, as an advisor at, at times, but um, I think just one more item sort of in the bucket of um, what what purpose is this serving um, and is there a potential for sort of strange and, and unfair results? I mean, I think there needs to be confidence institutionally and um, more, more broadly than that in, in the process. Um, and so this is, certainly suggesting that ORI isn't convinced in um, the robustness of this process at, at a number of institutions is, is my guess. 
Yeah, it seems to be kind of the, all these regs are a lot more heavy handed and not um, maybe so happy with how institutions have taken the original um, PHS regulations and implemented them. And I think, you know, ORI certainly feels to be getting more involved in imposing kind of a stricter regimen here. Um, and, you know, I'm sure there's lots of political uh, reasons we could all speculate about. Uh, we hit one o'clock, so I want to not go over. Um, thank you so much to the panelists. You guys um, really, you know, shared incredible insight here today um, and kind of on all these very nuanced topics. And thank you all for attending um, and, you know, joining the conversation. If you have thoughts, um, again, I think the comment period is open for a few more weeks. So obviously some, some important changes to take note of. Um, and uh, on, the, on behalf of the BBA, thanks again to the panelists um, and have a great weekend.